Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Part of the way you lose your rights is the uncertainty of whether you get to exercise your rights. But it's the randomness that throws you off kilter. Maria Ressa is not easily thrown off. She's been called the face of the free press in the Philippines. In 2021, she and a Russian journalist shared the Nobel Peace Prize for their dedication to journalistic freedom. But reaching those heights has exacted a high cost. I've gone from, you know, the investigations in 2018 were 14, then 11 were filed. Maria Ressa's fight to speak truth to power has made her a target for vicious political and legal harassment. She has faced a slew of charges in the Philippines over her work at Rattler, the new site she co-founded. There was a point we had, we started with eight cases, then it became 10 cases. Since 2018, the state has brought 23 cases against her, including one that seeks to force Rattler out of operation entirely. The government comes top down, files the cases. This Kafkaesque moment has made me a criminal. In January, she was acquitted on four tax evasion charges that would have left her imprisoned. But she's still fighting three additional legal cases, including an appeal at the Supreme Court of the Philippines over a cyber libel conviction from 2020. If that appeal fails, she could face more than six years in prison. Through it all, she remains preoccupied with questions of freedom, democracy, and truth and the ways in which those ideals are crumbling, particularly on the web. What globally we're going through is that there is impunity online. And if you have impunity online, you have impunity offline. And that has weakened our, our rule of law, which is the foundation of our democracies. That rise in impunity also weighs on Ron Diebert, founder and director of The Citizen Lab, an academic research lab in Toronto that studies digital threats to civil society. These are despots, dictators, tyrants, oligarchs who are increasingly acting with impunity. They can get away with a lot. And really coincidentally, the digital ecosystem that surrounds us has proven to be their best ally. Ron Diebert and Maria Ressa have formed an alliance of their own against disinformation and the threat it poses to democracy. In September 2022, they joined me on stage for a live panel discussion at Toronto's Harbourfront Centre in collaboration with Penn Canada and the Toronto International Festival of Authors. Good evening to all of you, and thank you for being here. I do want to kind of underline the fact that what we're talking about here is the structured nature of 
violations of freedom of expression, that there is nothing accidental about these things happening in this day and age. So, Ron, I, w- I thought I'd just ask you, what patterns do you see? Mm. Well, it does look pretty bleak. Backstage, Marie asked me, are you optimistic about the world around us? I said, well, actually, no. Uh, if I'm very busy in my job, that means the world is kind of in a bad place because <laughs> the work that we do at Citizen Lab is carefully investigating, gathering evidence on abuses of power worldwide, and frankly, they're just accumulating. We live in a kind of a disturbing time right now. There's a a well-documented descent into authoritarianism happening, uh, not just in places like the Philippines, but all over the world. And there are many causes for that descent. One of the most important is the topic of the conversation today. I think we both agree that the uh, changes in the business practices of the internet and social media are an important precipitating factor. It's propelling forward by design emotional extreme content playing upon our worst emotions in order to uh, drive forward a business model essentially that's all about monitoring all of us as, as closely as possible for business reasons. And it's leading to all sorts of pathologies that we're seeing around us uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about today. Absolutely, we'll get to. I I guess, you know, we've all been watching the news and we have heard your stories, Maria, about the kinds of abuses you've been subjected to. And then we are horrified to hear about something like what happened to Salman Rushdie um, in August of 2022. And I just wondered if both of you could address if, if, if those are the same thing. Is this all part of the same trend? Maria. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I was the speaker after Salman Rushdie in that same space uh, a week later. And, you know, um, the man who stabbed him repeatedly was radicalized online. Right? The radicalization online, uh, we kind of in the West dismissed as random violence. It isn't. It's It's something that happens in your mind, right? What are we talking about here? In the Nobel lecture, I called it a behavior modification system. This is what social media has become because essentially everything that you post, and look, I have a cell phone on my, it's glued to me, but everything here, every app you have takes everything you post and machine learning comes in and builds a model of you. Another word for model, clones you your private thoughts, your private needs, you know, and and that clone is picked up by artificial intelligence and put in a repository. That is how these social media companies micro-target your weakness, right? So imagine the clone. So we go right back into privacy. Our notions of privacy are outdated, but this then becomes the mother load. You have a clone that's owned by these companies. And this clone knows you better than you know yourself, right? Yuval Harari said that our first task really is to know ourselves, because if you don't, your clone knows you better. So anyway, this is the biggest, I think that's the core problem. And in September, we actually, Dmitry Muratov and I, along with 10 other Nobel laureates and about 150 different organizations and people, came up with kind of a 10-point action plan for how we do it. And it's exactly what Ronald talked about, which is um, stop surveillance for profit. 
the battle is not just in Russia and Ukraine, it is in each of our minds. Mm -hmm. And so that needs to stop. Since you brought up Nobel laureates, I thought maybe we could go down this road again before we get to kind of the nitty gritty of what happens online. And that is you often highlight, and certainly since you won, since you won the Nobel Prize, uh, is that it, the, the last time a journalist was actually given a Nobel Prize before our time was in 1935. What is it about the story of Karl von Ossietzky that resonates with you? When I was looking at this, you know, he couldn't accept the Nobel Peace Prize. It was given a year later in 1936. He couldn't accept it because he was languishing in a Nazi concentration camp. And we really have to look at a lot of these parallels. I actually thought that the Norwegian Nobel Committee was quite prescient because, one, the journalists all around the world, like they basically gave us a gift to say you are not alone and that maybe we can do something together. That's the first. I think the second thing is it's an existential moment. It's a similar moment um, post-World War II. You know, we, I mean, leading to that, where, what are the common themes? Economic downturn, you have war kicking in, you have us against them. If you've read some of the parts of Mein Kampf and then compared it to some of the manifestos of the shootings that have happened in Buffalo, the most recent one, um, the, the radicalization of these guys, Uvalde, another interesting. So you, if you compare them, uh, here's an easier one, uh, Hungary, how Viktor Orban has placed white re replacement theory as part of state ideology. This is us against them, but you go right back to Hitler's Mein Kampf and you see the same thing. It is, it leads to violence. We are in the same spot. It is, this is the reason why I, I'm so worried. <laughs> so so if, if the violations of freedom of expression that we are witnessing now are kind of pretending this slide towards authoritarianism, just as it did back then. Fascism. And, and fascism, as you said, you've now allowed you, yourself to use that word. I, I'm curious where you think we are on this arc. Ron. Oh, I think it's a, a very dangerous time right now. There's no doubt about it. Um, Are we at the I, beginning or the middle or near the end? It's hard to say. I mean, you know, the, the future's open-ended, and part of the reason we're here on this panel is to try to do something about it so we could change the course, and there, hopefully we'll get into some of the solutions that Maria and others have talked about with respect to social media. Right now, though, I think it's not inaccurate to say that the world is run by a transnational class of gangsters. That's the way I think about it. And um, <laughs> right? we shouldn't give them applause. Um, <clears throat> and, and, you know, these are despots, dictators, tyrants, oligarchs who are increasingly acting with impunity. They can get away with a lot. And really coincidentally, the digital ecosystem that surrounds us has proven to be their best ally for yes. a number of reasons. One is this toxic public sphere that's generated by the algorithms. Yeah. That turns out to be the perfect environment if you want to spread disinformation. You want to harass people. And they take advantage of it. Not themselves. Yeah. There's a huge value-added industry, privatized intelligence, uh, industrial-scale disinformation, firms that provide targeted espionage. Mm -hmm. And who do they go after? 
political opposition, they go after human rights organizations, and they go after journalists, journalists. right? Journalists, two sitting on the stage here. <laughs> um, you know, one example, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, brutal execution, we all witnessed that. Since that time uh, of that event, we know his close several of his close confidants, we at the Citizen Lab, show their devices were hacked with very powerful, sophisticated spyware operated by Saudi Arabia, including both his wife and his fiance. His wife is now suing NSO Group, the manufacturer of that spyware. That industry, spyware industry, industrial scale disinformation, uh, location tracking that's used by private intelligence firms to harass and discredit and even murder people, that whole sector is entirely unregulated now yes. and causing enormous harm. It's also making people a lot of money. There are, these are multi-billion dollar companies that are thriving on this, and they have shareholders, front companies. Um, so, you know, this is going to be difficult. We shouldn't underestimate the challenge. Very serious threat right now for liberal democracy because the pillars that hold it together are being systematically eroded intentionally yeah. by the people who stand to profit by it. Yeah. I'd like to get at how difficult it is to learn about you know, an example like that, where mm -hmm. a phone has been infected by a, a surveillance software. Yeah. Can you talk about that, Ron? Just explain how long did it take for you to even know that, that this has been, Khashoggi's yeah. phone had been affected by yeah, that that's, software? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's actually very, very difficult because yeah. the firms that we're talking about, if we're uh, talking specifically about hacking into a device using the most sophisticated technology, a company like NSO Group, which manufactures Pegasus, many people in the audience may have heard of this particular spyware, the latest version of it could take over any phone without leaving any obvious evidence of tampering and no need to trick a user into clicking on a link or anything like that. Simply takes over the phone. It also evades forensic analysis. So we just happen to be one of the research centers in the world that has specialized in doing the forensics. And we've gotten quite good at be, being able to track these vendors and look for the fingerprints. Even they, being very sophisticated uh, surveillance vendors, leave digital breadcrumbs if you know where to look. It is definitely not easy, but I think we've gotten to the point now where we're quite good at it. The flip side, of course, is that we're seeing one after another of these uh, cases of abuse involving this type of surveillance technology, often with lethal consequences. Mm -hmm. And even in liberal democracies, right now, I can say connected to the findings of the Citizen Lab, there are at least four Watergate-style scandals in Europe alone based on the abuse of this type of surveillance technology. Yeah. Maria, you've talked about the accelerating effect that social media and that kind of technology has on this corrosive effect of, of, of you know, replacing the truth with lies. But, you know, there are people behind the technology, as Ron just pointed out. What is the trait that the people who are both vulnerable and who peddle this technology have in common? The people who are vulnerable and who create the technology? Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Well, so for the people who create technology and the governments who exploit the weaknesses of the technology, their interests dovetail because the more lies, the more you believe the lies, the more money is made, mm. right? So 
power and money. This is, this is hand in hand. The confusion here is that meaning has been taken away. So when you're targeted in information operations, free speech is used to stifle free speech, mm-hmm. right? So you're pounded a million times. Like in my case, it would be Maria is a criminal. So that, that comes up a million times. People begin to believe it. It's astroturfing. Mm-hmm. And then the government comes top down, files the cases. So this Kafkaesque moment has made me a criminal, which is true and which is false. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to the fundamental flaw, which is we are now in a space where the fact isn't a fact. Because of the, the personalization of, of this, because of the different news feeds, the people in this room can see water, the people in the center can see Coke, the people in the left can see vodka. And you wouldn't know the difference. But here we are trying to solve one problem like climate change. How can you solve climate change if you don't have a shared reality? That's truly, I think, fundamental, right? But how do you explain that, that paradox, the fact that we live in the most information-saturated time ever, and yet at the same time, there, has, there are real efforts, both top-down and ground-up, to silence media and others who want to express their opinions. Ron, any thoughts? Sure. Uh, I think part of it has to do with this you know, development that happened around the time when the internet first started, I think there was a, a great promise, the fact that we could connect to each other uh, one-on-one bilaterally and everyone was given a megaphone. It sounded like a great idea, um, but there, there are a couple problems. One, we've talked about the business model that got layered on top of it, um, which is, you know, at its root, it's primarily about monitoring users, to gather information about those users, to then sell it for advertisement, which creates a lot of the syndromes that we see around it. And then I think there's also an uncomfortable truth about human nature. Um, you know, People gravitate towards content that um, touches upon their nerves, that makes them angry. That tends to keep them more connected. And uh, the platforms also do a very poor job at moderating content. Some of them try, some of them have rules. Um, They're actually better in some parts of the world, very bad in other parts of the world. And I'm sure Maria can talk about firsthand experience around that. These are Silicon Valley headquartered companies, mostly made up of engineers that come from that part of the world. They don't have the language resources. They don't have the uh, capacity to understand, let alone intervene at, uh, uh, you know, on a time scale that actually prevents uh, content from circulating that causes harm. And so bad actors take advantage of that. And that's why we're seeing this, you know, the only way I can describe it is toxic, harmful uh, discussions happening that are amplified and lead to the sort of experiences that unfortunately Maria has had, but so many people around the world, I'm sure you'd agree, have had as well. So much. And yeah. women. Women the more yeah. The more marginalized you are, the more marginalized you become. Yeah. I think it's we've taken many steps back. But I think the biggest problem is that the incentive structure, so we go from the business model, the incentive structure is a race to the bottom. right? Yeah. So if you're a news organization mm-hmm. and you're relying on social media for distribution, because we don't own the distribution platforms anymore, um, what do you do? 
when lies spread faster than facts, when the incentive is to actually lie, right? As a news organization, you don't because you can be sued because we're the gatekeepers. So what happens? The news itself moves from sensationalism all the way to the kind of political lies that you see, right? So it's a race to the bottom. So if it's a page view, you've commoditized news and good news, I mean, and I don't mean good news, I mean like investigative journalism, which is rarely good news. You know how little page views you get for Mm -hmm. that? So you've commoditized, so news news organizations struggle to give you the news you need to hold your government account. That, that's the first thing. And then the second part is, it's emergent human behavior, human behavior at scale that is the worst of who we are, right? Because again, you go back, there's a great E.O. Wilson quote. He's a, he's a biologist who studies emergent behavior in ants. He said that the greatest crisis we face is our paleolithic emotions, our medieval institutions, and our godlike technologies. So we're creating... What could go wrong? (laughs) Right. But I mean, think about it, right? Like emergent human behavior of anger and hate. Mm -hmm. It's like devil and angel on your shoulder. You have a conscience. You're trying to make a tough decision. Am I going to insult that person? You know, and the devil says, yes, 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 yes. The angel says, no, think how he'll feel, how he'll feel. And what technology did is it gagged the angel and flicked it off your shoulder and then gave the devil a a direct megaphone into your mouth, (laughs) into your brain, right? That's, and this is at scale. You have said, and uh, well, many media outlets, most that are trying to survive, have positioned themselves as the antidote that they are perhaps not the main gatekeepers, but they're perhaps the best gatekeepers. But we've seen plenty of evidence that it's not a very convincing argument for many people. So how is the battle, I mean, at the risk of asking a question that I think we all kind of know the answers to, how do you see the battle for credibility going right now? Trust is gone, right? And this is part of what weakens democracies because Trust is related to rule of law, but you know, in the Nobel lecture, I I made a very simple thing. Without facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. If you don't have these three, you don't have a shared reality. You don't have democracy, right? Mm. Flip that. Rule of law is based on trust, on facts. If you don't have that, how do we have rule of law? I mean, and look at the impunity that has happened globally. We know Russian disinformation impacted the 2016 presidential elections. That is in the data. Um, And yet, it's impunity. No one has been held accountable. Myanmar, genocide has happened, and yet impunity continues. There's a great quote by George Shultz. He said the biggest lesson he had learned, he turned 100 years old, the biggest lesson he had learned as a diplomat is that with trust in the room, Everything is possible. Without trust, nothing is possible. 
You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. The people who create technology and the governments who exploit the weaknesses of the technology, their interests dovetail because the more lies, the more you believe the lies, the more money is made. Very serious threat right now for liberal democracy because the pillars that hold it together are being systematically eroded by the people who stand to profit by it. For Nobel laureate Maria Ressa, and Citizen Lab founder Ron Diebert. The battle against online disinformation is a battle for democracy itself. But it is a formidable foe. Spyware industry, industrial-scale disinformation, location tracking that's used by private intelligence firms to harass and discredit and even murder people. That whole sector is entirely unregulated. The erosion of the information ecosystem, thanks in no small part to social media companies, has torn a hole in the fabric of our shared reality. But Maria believes that it can and must be mended. We must come up with a new system of what civic engagement looks like in the age of exponential lies. In 2022, she and 10 other Nobel laureates presented a 10-point action plan to end online abuse, hate speech, and disinformation, and to protect journalism. Journalism is the antidote to tyranny. But enacting that plan will require global cooperation. Liberal democracy is something that needs to be tended to. I think of it kind of like a garden. I spoke with Citizen Lab director Ron Diebert and Nobel laureate Maria Ressa on stage at Toronto's Harbourfront Centre as part of the Toronto International Festival of Authors in September 2022. How do you put a genie called Alternative Facts back into the bottle? Well, I mean, it's it's not going to be easy, that's for sure. I think we have to recognize, first of all, the... the um, you know, the world is divided into several hundred sovereign states. So when we think about, okay, let's start regulating social media. Let's try to implement um, some of the solutions that people are talking about. Um, it's going to be difficult to get all of that, that group of countries together on the same page and have people thinking, first of all, that they agree. These are the solutions that we want. And then you have um, those who don't want the solutions that we all agree on actively working against it. Trying to undermine... Autocracy, Inc. Autocracy, Inc. Yeah, good one. That should be your next book. There you go. It's a title. Um, But, you know, it's not impossible. I think um, we have to uh, take it 
piece by piece and have manageable steps that are practical and realistic. Everyone should look at the uh, recommendations uh, that were made by Maria and her colleague and all of those people who signed. These are practically accomplishable. I mean, just to single out one, uh, we all know the, the business of investigative journalism is under threat. Uh, news organizations are hollowed out. That has to do with many, many, many factors, not just social media, many factors. It's a, it's a trend that's been happening for a while. We need to repair that. How do we do that? Probably it has to come through some kind of government support. There has to be programs for it, uh, funding for it. Uh, we need organizations like mine, more, more citizen labs in yes. the world doing that type of dogged work from a university-based perspective. Universities have also been kind of hollowed out. There's yeah. so much priority on science, technology, engineering. Not that those are bad things, but the focus is all about employment, giving people training for jobs. What about critical thinking? Mm -hmm. What about the humanities? What about doing things like what we do at the Citizen Lab? If there was more of that going on, we'd maybe begin to recover some semblance of you know, uh, a feeling of confidence that we can tackle this problem. Um, so I think we have to look at you know, manageable small steps. But Maria, go ahead, please. Of the 10-point action plan. Yes. I, I mean, yes. to summarize the three main things, you know, so there are 10 points there, but the three main things is the first one is stop surveillance for profit. I think the second is tech must treat everyone equally. That doesn't happen, right? This goes back to kind of a universal declaration of human rights. The third part is, Journalism is the antidote to tyranny. We've actually rolled democracy back to 15 years ago. And uh, journalists, both in terms of um, jailing them, killing them, intimidating them, this is quite unprecedented where we are today. And here's the last part. So I'll dump everything depressing all together so we can talk yeah. hope after. Um, <laughs> We just went through elections in the Philippines, and our presidential elections overwhelmingly elected uh, President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Um, exactly 36 years after Filipinos had a people power revolt that ousted the family that stole $10 billion from our coffers in 1986 dollars. And that partly happened because of information operations that began in 2014, mm -hmm. not coincidentally, Ukraine, uh, Crimea at that mm -hmm. point, right? Um, but here's the thing. We will fall off the cliff by 2024 because there will be more illiberal leaders elected democratically who cave these institutions from within. There will be more of that. The geopolitical balance will shift. And it will be Autocracy Inc. This is not mine, it's Ann Applebaum. But, yeah. you know, look at what's happening in Iran. I mean, sorry, we can, we, not to depress you, I give it back to you. But it's, it's, it's a, you raised some really important questions, but I do want to take you back to the list of three, uh, the, main, the main ones of the 10 that you have proposed. And to me, it feels like one of the hardest. How do you disincentivize a business that is, you know, a multi-billion dollar business. How do you actually rein in the surveillance technology business in order to kind of stop this, this cycle from going on? How realistic is that? We've done this before, right? Have Think we? about the age of industrialization mm -hmm. in the 19th century when the commodity was labor. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, there were sweatshops and child labor, and that was rolled back. And many of the people who made so much money at that point in time off labor then gave tremendous amounts of money into, into education, right? This time around, we've regulated, I mean, big tobacco is an interesting one. That's mm. a very similar one. But, you know, um, drug industry, the air travel, all of these very complex industries are regulated. And mm. yet, the thing that touches our minds, what yeah. connects all of us, right? The internet, mm. which, by the way, we don't have a vision we don't have a democratic vision for the internet. We don't. Ron. Could I jump in on this yes, point? Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, it, when you're talking about meaningful things that we could do in the short term and in the context of applying principled democratic governance to these social media platforms, one of the things we don't really know well is what goes on inside the companies, especially with their algorithms, yes. which is astonishing when you think about it, the intimacy that they have with connections to the most, you know, intimate aspects of our, even our minds now, uh, they know about, they systematically collect, and yet we can't see the machinery behind it all because they consider it proprietary. If you compare that to, say, the food industry or a meat packing plant, it would be outrageous. No one would accept that, you know, there wouldn't be health inspectors going into a food processing facility, and yet we don't have the equivalent of that for social media. We need to empower government agencies to go in with the public interest in mind and inspect those algorithms, make them transparent, make sure that they're accountable so we can see, well, what is Meta actually doing with all of this data? We need to compel them to do that. That's how close a very are simple we? thing. How close are we in that, in that? I mean, this discussion has been going on for several years. How close are we to that well, kind it's, of model? It's interesting. I mean, you know, it all depends on who's elected, who's in the, the right administration at the right time in the right place. Right now, we have the Biden administration, and interestingly, uh, they made, I think, some very uh, good choices in terms of putting at least a couple people in positions where they might be able to affect some change at the head of the FTC, Lena Khan, someone who is yeah. really smart, thinking about breaking up these companies. Mm -hmm. If we break them up, I mean, think about Amazon, how much control that company, what it's turned into. This is speaking of like the late 19th, early 20th century when we had these huge industrial companies, Amazon now controls, you know, it's a bookstore, it's a video store, it's a pharmaceutical company, on and on and on. Um, we need to break these companies up and introduce competition first and foremost. So maybe some type of alternative will emerge that not, is not premised on sucking data from our personal lives and turning that into profit. Um, so it could happen. I mean, if, if, if that could happen in the United States, maybe we could see it happen here in Canada and other parts of the world. I think we have to look at it holistically. Data privacy, antitrust, content moderation, user safety, these are all parts of the same problem. They're, and yet we take them apart as different things. In the end, it goes right back to our data, um, which is hard to quantify when you're in a democracy, right? Like, it goes back to the clone. And do you want somebody to clone you and own you? That's really a fundamental question. The US hasn't been very good at it yet. Um, but the EU has the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, 
They've moved away from looking at it as content. Please remember, $70 million, this is what the tech companies spend just to lobby to maintain the surveillance capitalism model. Did I mention I'm a partner? Rappler partners with all the tech companies. We don't have a choice, right? But it starts there. We must reclaim our data, our cloned selves. And you're right, it is who we elect. But this also must be a groundswell or the people we elect can exploit the very same things. And Ron, I just wonder if, you know, over the years, over hundreds of years, of course, propaganda and disinformation has been with us since Roman times. Is there anything about our ability to counteract propaganda and to get past it over all of these years that perhaps we can put into action now that might help us kind of live through this era? I think so. I think there are some, you know, uh, time-tested techniques that, you know, and I'm a professor, so we specialize in thinking about how to evaluate competing arguments and how to think about what evidence looks like, thinking about methods to do research. Um, but, of course, we're, we're fighting uh, against the current right now. It's, it's not even a current. It's like a tidal wave. Um, just looking systematically at the volume of information and the news cycle. Um, works against those tendencies because you have a massive scandal and you're like, oh, geez, what is this about? What, what, what take should I have on this? Do I understand what's going on? And then before you can even get your head around it, there's another massive scandal. And of course, this is all propelled forward by um, the engine of, of the social media companies, which you know try to uh, prioritize a sensational content. <laughs> However, I, I think you know, it gets back to what we talked about earlier. The, the foundations have eroded of what protects liberal democracy when it comes to precisely what you're talking about. We need citizens to be uh, educated, to understand things like civics. I mean, that's not even really taught properly anymore, what it means to be a citizen. What are your rights and responsibilities as a citizen? And, and also critical thinking and the humanities, the arts, these things have all been eroded mm -hmm. over the last like 50 years. We need to begin there, I think. Um, that's obvious to me as a solution, in addition to you know, all of the measures we need to take to fix the problems around social media, we need to realize that it's not just the technology. We have a problem with our societies generally. Bring it back to journalists and the media, Maria. You know, it, it is outfits like yours and Citizen Lab and perhaps Bellingcat, if you've heard of that, that can practically actually try and stay ahead of the lies that are brewing online. Are traditional media outfits de facto just simply un, unable, unequipped for this fight? Yes. <laughs> we need to embrace the tech. We are being outstripped on the tech. Um, and, you know, journalists building tech will build that tech differently. So I think as journalists, the first is, and we know this, our business model is dead. Advertising, you know, the old world where we would all see the same advertising, that's dead. It's micro-targeting. And that's part of the reason why the social media, these companies have outsized um, advertising revenues, and why news organizations are dying. But I just want to pick up solutions because I sound so darn negative. Um, <laughs> Long-term, agree, education. And I agree that you know, we focus on tech, but we don't focus on what makes, what gives the wisdom for the tech. Mm. 
and the values that should drive this tech, right? So, so education, medium-term legislation, okay, but what kind of legislation attack the data, the amplification, the problem is not speech, it is distribution. It is outsized distribution. And then in the short term, the biggest problem we have is civil society, everyone in the room thinks it's still the old world. We must come up with a new system of what civic engagement looks like in the age of exponential lies. Because we're not gonna be able to hold, journalists can't do our jobs well, we're not gonna be able to hold power to account, um, and yet we must try. This is actually what we tried to do in the Philippines for, for our presidential elections, but we set it up too late. Um, we did a four-layer pyramid uh, a whole-of-society approach to try to protect the facts. I called it our Avengers Assemble moment. <laughs> the bottom layer, facts, the fact check, um, 16 news organizations working together. We've never done that before because wow. we compete, mm -hmm. right? So 16, but you know what? So we did fact checks, and every news group can share anything, but fact checks don't spread because they're boring. So the second layer is something we call the mesh. You know that movie, Don't Look Up, from Netflix? Mm -hmm. So the planetary defense system came on bit by bit, the mesh, right? So this is civil society, NGOs, business groups, the church, um, and their instructions are to ch share those boring fact checks, but add emotion. <laughs> um, <laughs> And we tried to steer it to inspiration rather than anger and hate, because we don't believe that you, can be, you need to be a monster to fight a monster. The third layer are academic institutions. For the first time, eight groups worked together on the same data that, uh, that each one would not share with each other, but we had a data pipeline going through all of this, and they every week told Filipinos how we were being manipulated, who was gaining, who was losing. And then that last layer, layer four, were the lawyers, uh, legal groups that finally kicked in because, because they filed 21 strategic and tactical litigation in three months. They were actually far more energized than those poor, overtired journalists on the fact checks. <laughs> but it worked. You know, it did work. I mean, we finally, when we mapped it, we took over the center of the information ecosystem, facts, boring facts. Um, and it, in the first two weeks, it was so effective that the Solicitor General, the, the government of the Philippines, filed a petition at the Supreme Court against our Commission on Elections and Little Rappler, saying that fact-checking is prior restraint. <laughs> I hate to, to, to get back to the, the darker side of things, because that does sound quite hopeful, but I recently came across a, 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 this observation and wanted to bounce it off both of you, uh, that it's as though governments, and in some cases societies, all over the, wor all over the world are getting tired of democracy, that it's mm. too messy, too slow, too hard, too ineffective, and the, the hard right appears to have energy or momentum as a result. Yeah. Despite what you just said, both of you, maybe Ron and then Maria, sure. mm -hmm. what do you make of that notion? Well, I think, you know, liberal democracy is something that needs to be tended to. I think of it kind of like a garden. And if you, you know, you let your garden go, eventually the weeds will come in. And there is an, an unfortunate human tendency, I think, to 
trend towards uh, that more darker side. And you know, human beings take advantage of other human beings. The great secret of liberal democracy is to come up with a design where we can create restraint mechanisms against ourselves and the government. And we put in place checks and balances. But those can erode over time. If we don't have a healthy uh, you know, free press, if we don't have free and fair elections, if we don't have democratic opposition, healthy civil society, strong academic networks, and so on. So we need to constantly you know, build towards that, is what I would say. The other thing I wanted to point out, just listening to Maria about the experience in the Philippines, collaboration is essential to any type of accountability work going on today, yes. in part because we're all facing these threats. My organization has been targeted as well, not quite like what Maria has faced, thank goodness, but uh, you know, we've, we've had our, our share of, of bad actors trying to undermine what we're doing at the Citizen Lab. And for every report that we do, we just had a, a major report come out, a, I guess about a month and a half ago now, that uncovered a massive domestic espionage operation in Thailand. We couldn't have done that report without the collaboration of partners in Thailand who worked with us at great personal risk. In that country, the work they're doing with us would be considered treasonous. Hmm. They, uh, you know, in fact, many of the people that were targeted that actually cooperated with us were uh, uh, sentenced to very lengthy prison terms for les majesty offenses. Yeah. Um, so you know, we couldn't have done that report sitting here in Toronto. We had to do it cooperating and collaborating with partners around the world. We need to have more of that, which is why after this, Maria and I are going to talk about how we can collaborate Dream. in the Philippines. Yeah. <laughs> but even with the tools you both, your organizations both have, it is still an uphill battle to fight the forces that try yeah. to stifle freedom and to of expression. So even if it's difficult for people or organizations like yours with the platforms that you have, what of the average person? What can they do? Where do I begin? Uh, I've been a journalist for 36 years, right? One of my first stories is people power. And then I've covered every single country in Southeast Asia that swung from one man authoritarian rule to democracy. And that went from like 1986 to 1992. That includes Myanmar, that includes South Korea even, right? Since then, Indonesia, almost 32 years of Suharto, since, since the, the changes of that, when things get tough, we always see a resurgence of this nostalgia for a strongman leader. Mm -hmm. Because it's hard, right? It's tough. And this is part of the danger of the economic downturn now, right? Because each of us, when the problem becomes too complex, and the demands on you as a citizen in a democracy increase. If you are feeling afraid, which is what information operations do, or um, what the platforms incentivize, if you're feeling that way, you're more prone to kind of like be the ostrich and stick your head, your neck in the sand. But when you do that, you will weaken mm -hmm. the fabric of democracy. Yep. And so, again, we go back to human nature. Our biology has been used against us by the design of the technology, mm -hmm. right? So, you think slow, not fast. You don't bury your head in the sand because 
the next two years, I think, will be crucial for all of us if we want to make sure our values survive, that checks and balances continue, that democracy survives, and then what's hinged on this? I mean, only the climate change issues. We're not going to be able to deal with these other existential problems if we don't solve this one first. Yeah, and Ron? Well, the, this phrase, average people, it, I don't really know what that means. I think they're just people, and people. every human being has great potential to do things. It just, are you going to decide to do something about the world that you live in? Are you going to choose to be a spectator or a participant? Are you going to do something? And of course, in many parts of the world, there's a great risk to do something. Look what Maria has faced. Yeah. Exhibit A. Look what's going on in Iran right now. Uh, what women are doing in Iran, standing up at great personal risk. Um, you need to take risks to change the world. You need to put yourself out there. And even if you, if you aren't in a, in a context where doing something like that is going to create a kind of physical insecurity, you can still make decisions about what you consume, how you behave. You said, think slow instead of fast. Yeah, maybe uh, get your media from somewhere else. Uh, think critically, not through Twitter. Um, take some time away from that. Avoid TikTok. <laughs> Avoid TikTok. Unless you're going to use it subversively, maybe. Yeah. Maria, you always ask, uh, you often ask, what will you sacrifice when you're talking to people? I'm wondering just if I can end with this question for you, is how long can you sacrifice? Um, I don't know. I mean, it feels to me this is such an important moment, and I will do all I can to... But this is something we talked about in Rappler, you know? When you look back, we all decided when we look back a decade from now, we're going to want to know we did everything we could. Um, I'm ready for worst-case scenarios. I'm not foolish, right? But I guess we talk... It's a game of chicken for me, and I, I'm not living in North Korea. I'm not living in a country that does not have a constitution, and as long as the constitution guarantees my rights, I am not going to voluntarily give that up. And, um, and in doing that, I hope that we, we start with Rappler, we start with Filipinos, who, and there are many who will not voluntarily give up our rights. And I hope to tip it that way. The only way to move forward today is to act. You've been listening to my conversation with Nobel Peace Laureate Maria Ressa and Ron Diebert, founder and director of the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. We spoke on stage at Toronto's Harbourfront Centre as part of the Toronto International Festival of Authors in September 2022. And we also took a few questions from the audience. Hi, my name is Aloysius. I'm a young uh, Filipino-Canadian journalist. My question is, um, I guess, for you as someone who practices journalism and also for you, Professor Diebert, as someone who analyzes media, we know that fake news and disinformation travels so much faster. I think it's five, six, even seven times faster. Six than, times. Six times, there we go, um, than traditional media. Are there solutions? Are there ways to have reliable, fact-based journalism travel as far and as quickly um, as, as fake news? And are there ways that we can learn from historical movements and things like that, how information used to travel 
So we know that these technology platforms can decide, can change, mm-hmm. right? So um, news ecosystem quality is essentially a button that Facebook, aka Meta, can turn up. They mm-hmm. can decide to turn up quality news. Mm-hmm. They make less money when they do, yeah. but only fractionally less, mm-hmm. right? And they did that after January 6th. Mm-hmm. And what happened, you had all of your kind of dubious news go down, and then you had New York Times, NPR, you had those go up, right? They kept that up only for a few weeks because they lost money at it. So again, this is, you can change it for the better. My name is Vanessa Ballantech. I'm also a young Filipino journalist, so um, big fan. Um, anyway, so I'm young. I, I went to journalism school. They don't teach you how to, you know, fight disinformation and these sophisticated, you know, um, campaigns to manipulate people or give them different realities than, than what journalists have. And I think my question is, beyond the technology, beyond the models and the changes in, the changes in those how can journalists kind of prepare ourselves and protect our minds from getting manipulated as well? Because we're, a lot of us are not subject matter experts. We're just, as you said, normal people. So I think since we're in this position, how would you say we're best able to kind of adapt to this beyond the tech? Wow, so tough. I think about it like this. I'm sorry I go back to weird things, but stranger things, right? <laughs> we're in the upside down. But you know there is a right side, there is the real world, there's the upside down. Right now we're in the upside down and it's getting worse. Vecra is winning, right? (laughs) So you have to kind of keep track of the right side, of of the way things are. Collaborate, 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 that's Mm -hmm. one. Two, get your phone checked by Ron. (laughs) 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 Um, uh, But you don't run as much risk as we do, right? But I'm so glad... You know, this is a wonderful time to be a journalist, and that sounds really, it is an amazing time to be a journalist because you can actually think about what you can create, right? So so don't let our very depressing present (laughs) determine what the future will be. And we can talk more later if you want. I'm on Twitter. Good idea. (laughs) Thank you. Maria Ressa, thank you. And Ron Deeper, thank you for all your wonderful insights. And thank you all for being here and for your wonderful questions. Thank you. My public conversation with Maria Ressa and Ron Diebert was organized in collaboration with Penn Canada as part of the Toronto International Festival of Authors. The event was held in honor of Canadian author and writer's advocate, Graham Gibson. This episode was produced by Greg Kelly and Annie Bender. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The web producer of ideas is Lisa Ayuso. Special thanks to Josh Nelman for his help in making the event happen. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. The executive producer of ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.